Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I said, look, Mr. Murdoch, I just wanted to let you know that I would like to be a reporter one day in New York. Well, one day you'll get there. Eleven years later, we ended up having dinner at the 107th floor of the World Trade Center. I didn't think he even remembered me and we were walking out. And he said, uh, see, I told you you'd get here one day. That is Mike Monroe, and this is episode 206 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Ginsburg podcast. I'm Washington Ginsburg. Thank you for being here. This is episode 206 of the show with author, journalist, Australian television icon, Mike Munro. This is going to be a goodie. More about Mike in a moment. A big thank you to everyone that sent through a picture this week. A podsy is what we like to call it here. P-O-D-S-I-E. Uh, it's just a photograph of you what you're looking at while you're listening to the show. You don't have to be in it. Some people choose to do that. You don't have to be. Just send a photograph of what you're looking at right now. I got some great ones this week. Marcio sent one from Brazil. Thanks, Marcio. Marcio sent one from Brazil of uh, the Brasilia Soccer Stadium, the really big, fancy one. Uh, absolutely magnificent. Isabel from Gogglebox sent one through. You know, the, the lady, she's one of the three ladies, there's three generations, uh, Daughter, mother, grandmother, they sit on the couch. Um, and she sent one through, which was great. Got some uh, really other other really great ones. Uh, from Willow sent me a goodie. David sent me a goodie. A uh, couple, of, couple of killers this week. So just send Osher email at gmail.com. It really helps us all get to know each other. And, you know, in the efforts of, of, of 
kind of normalizing what it is to communicate and realize that we live in a community and then here's other people doing the same thing that you are and oh look don't we have something in common why don't we be in the words of Eddie Izzard brave and curious rather than uh fearful and suspicious uh let's be brave and curious and 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 have a look and, and see that we're all doing the same thing together and I know there's thousands of people doing the same thing right now listening to this podcast and that makes me feel really great send osher email at gmail.com uh if you want to write me at all that's where you can. I write back to pretty much everybody. While you are on your phone, uh, what would be really great this week if you could help us out? Just, oh, thank you. Oh, I've got to do something. What is my, my calendar says? Have a weekend. Like, okay, I will. Um, while you're there, uh, it'd be really great if this week you could just tell a friend about the show. That would really, really help. Just someone that you care about. Um, just let them know about the show. Maybe show them how to download it. That would really help, really help what we do because um, uh, the more ears that listen to the show, the higher profile guests I can get on the show, the better shows that you get to listen to. We all win. It's a beautiful thing. So, yeah, thanks for being here. If you've never been to the show before, hi, I'm Osher. Um, the, I count roses on the television sometimes. I used to uh, help you vote for your favourite singers on television back in the olden days. And I used to be on the breakfast radio show in Brisbane, which I am not doing anymore. Um, uh, but, no, I'm... I've been doing this uh, each week for the last 206 weeks, which is a four, five, four years now. <laughs> so, hi. Thanks. Thanks for coming. To uh, to check in with you, to let you know how I'm going, um, I hope your week was good. A big thanks to everybody that uh, got in touch with support around my dodgy hips. Um, thanks a lot for your words of encouragement there. A lot of people, it's, again, you know, made me feel wonderful that I'm not alone. There's a lot of people that have experienced a similar situation, whether it be a hip scenario or a broken femur or something busted with your knees where you can't run anymore. And that was really nice to to hear a lot of other options about movement and what it is to get out and move your body when you can't run. Um, a couple of people got in touch with certain pain management techniques. Some people got in touch with, hey, this surgeon really helped me. Maybe you want to go for a second opinion or a third opinion. All this so so grateful. I'm a total stranger. Um, and you, you know, <laughs> you really reached out and, and helped me. Uh, and that's just really a wonderful thing. And that's, that's a beautiful thing that makes me feel happy about our world that people who don't know each other can, uh, you know, without much habit, make someone else feel really good. So it made me feel really good. So thank you. It's a story that will unfold and I will keep you updated as the scans and injections and things go on. I did want to talk about something that uh, happened to me this week. Um, I'm working through some things with a trauma therapist, who's someone who specialises in in helping you process past trauma, to uh, unpack a few things that happened to me along the way. And I never cease to be amazed at how the body, the human body, can store the results of trauma if those expressions of trauma don't, happen at the time of the traumatic experience, crying, wailing, shaking, etc. Now, sometimes my therapist and I, she and I work particularly hard on something, and sometimes when that happens, all that night, I, I feel like I've done three back-to-back kickboxing sessions where I'm the kick pad, you know, I, I'll lie in bed and, and my shoulders will be in my ears, and I'll just, you know, it's incredible the energy that can gets released, that gets released the other day. Um the other day I was I was sitting there and we were talking about some stuff and my body started to just it was the weirdest feeling like just emit heat and I was I, I, it got hotter and hotter through the day and like f- from my heart center like 
above my tummy, between my boobs, like from there, just heat just emanating out of me. I was sweating. I get home. I'm like, what do I think? I might be sick. I'm coming down with something. Or, what do I do? Uh, she goes, well, you feel a bit clammy, but I don't think you've got a fever. I changed into shorts. I was so hot and I got the, the fancy uh, thermometer thing, the one that you put in your ear and push the trigger. No fever. Um, it got cold later that night. Everyone's wearing jumpers around the house. I'm steaming. Check again. No fever. I felt I felt hot to the touch, though, which was really weird. And it, it was just incredible that, that, I mean, you know, at a physics level, that heat has to be generated by expending an enormous amount of energy. That energy was somehow stored in my body and was escaping after what we'd done earlier in the in the trauma work that she and I were working with. Oh, I wonder how much of that energy is still in my body. How much is locked in there? What am I walking around with? What am I carrying around? And it did make me think and make me, you know, stop down and be grateful for how lucky I am that I have access to a therapist who's a specialist in this situation and also that I have means to pay to see her. Um, and I'm sure, like you, um, my heart was breaking seeing the incredibly traumatised refugees on Manus Island who are in such dire need of help and care. I can't begin to imagine the trauma that these men might be carrying around with them and what kind of a therapy might be needed to help them come back from some of the things that they've seen, some of the things that have happened to them that led them to, to seek refuge in another country and then the things that happen to them in that detention centre and are happening right now, it's pretty dire. Um, but there are people that are offering those services and are offering that support. And look, there is a way to help. Uh, you can do donate to the um, Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, asrc.org.au, asrc.org.au. A small donation of like 15 bucks can really go a long way. I think 15 bucks can provide one night of safe accommodation for someone seeking refuge. Uh, or you can donate monthly. Um, but another really interesting um, non-profit that's working uh, out there, it's a long URL, Gifts for Manus and Nehru. So gifts for Manus and Nehru, just, so just spelling it all out, .org.au. What they do is they organise phone credit and phones for uh, these people who are stranded out there uh, so they can communicate with the outside world. If that, if you know, if, if you can't do that, that's okay. There's plenty of ways that you can send an email, plenty of ways you can make a phone call. Um, and, you know, let the people in our government who are making these decisions on our behalf that you're not happy if you're not happy. You might be happy. That's okay. Personally, I'm not happy uh, because as Australians, as a, as a country, we have always prided ourselves on looking after the battler, looking after the person that's the underdog, looking after the person that needs help. We've done it in the past. Uh, we've reached out and helped people who need, who need a safe country to live in in the past. My own family uh, is an example. Um. Uh, and it, it's, you know, yes, the world has changed, but we haven't changed as a country that much. And I personally believe that we, we have the means, we have the ability to, to care for these people. Uh, I did, as often happens, when I 
put something online about this, whether it be same-sex marriage or whether it be this, I put the Prime Minister's office's phone number up the other day. And some people were quite agitated. But look, compassion is not a competition, all right? People were saying, well, why don't you look after the homeless people? Yeah, I want to look after the homeless people. There was a homeless guy sleeping in the bus stop around the corner from my house the other day. Do I have the capacity in my in my skill set, can I look after this person who's possibly dealing with um, some very complicated factors, possibly dealing with mental illness? Absolutely not. I can't offer that kind of help to that person, but I can help that person get to someone who can get that help. Um, and I can help those who are helping people like that. Um, we are a country that's always looked out for those in need. It's in our second bloody verse of our national anthem. For those who've come across the seas with boundless plains to share. Don't forget that part. If we have to wait until we fix everything before we start anything, we'd never get anything done. No democracy is perfect and no problem-solving solution is perfect. But in the words of Brandon Webb, a good plan executed now is better than a perfect plan executed later. I've got no idea what a good plan is, but it's got to be better than people digging for water with their bare hands. asrc.org.au, the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, giftsformanusandnauru.org.au. There's another place you can go to help. So let me tell you about my guest today. I'm stoked this guy's here. Mike Munro is an Australian journalist and author and television icon, pretty much. He's been on our screens for a long time, and rightly so. He rose to prominence as a part of the early lineup of the then groundbreaking TV show 60 Minutes. It's not a very, it's a very different show to what it is what it was then. Now, Mike went on to host the nightly magazine show, A Current Affair, which broke some of the biggest stories of its time before editorially turning a corner that led him to split from the show. And he talks about that in this conversation. I'm really grateful that he did. Mike's latest project is called Lawless, The Real Bush Rangers, which you can watch in Australia. You can watch it on Foxtel in New Zealand. You can watch it on Sky. Elsewhere, you'll find it I know you will. Uh, in this documentary series, Mike takes a forensic archaeology team back to the sites of famous last stands of Australian bushrangers, a highwayman, if you're in the US or the UK, beards, guns, money or your life, that kind of thing. And they discover some incredible things that are still there to this day. They've discovered some things that have yet have never been uncovered. And as a part of that, they unpack... Australia's romanticism with bushrangers, and they also reunite families of both the police and the bushrangers that took part, took part in those final battles. Mike himself is a direct descendant of the last bushranger hanged in Australia, and he talks about that in this show. Quick trigger warning. As we talk, Mike and I touch on his early life and what drove him to, I guess, Seeking justice, which is what the thing that really kind of underpinned his entire journalistic career. 
And through that, we talk about his family and we discuss alcoholism and we also discuss domestic violence as a part of that story. So if you want to avoid that today, no problem. I'll see you next week. Go back and listen to another episode if you want. No problem at all. Uh, if you want to skip over, about 10 minutes after Mike and I start talking, uh, you should be fine. Uh, but if you hear us, just whoop, fast forward again. All right. I'm so stoked that Mike came around. We had a cracking chat. Um, it's uh, not often that I get a, an absolute legend of Australian television in my house, and uh, it was thrilling to have him sit across my, my kitchen table. So enjoy this conversation with Mike Munro. Thanks for coming around, Mike. How are you, man? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled that you're here because I'm, I'm excited because I want to talk about Bush Rangers, mm-hmm. which is your new, your new show on Foxtel, mm-hmm. which I'm, uh, I've, I've, co- I've a thing for Bush Rangers. I'm a, I've a thing for the social uh, situation that caused them and then what we as Australian culture have retold ourselves about them to justify them in our folklore mm-hmm. versus what they actually were. <laughs> yep, absolutely. <laughs> but also, you know, to have someone with your, you know, extraordinary career to talk to is, is you know, really interesting. Man. Thank you. I mean, you've been at this for a, for a long time. Too, some, some people say too long. No, but you're still doing it. <laughs> you know what? It's, um, it's interesting because um, someone said to me the other day, well, this, this is like this is a fourth career for you. And I said, what do you mean? I started in newspapers, so I had a newspaper career for 15 years and then walked away from television twice because I thought they were all a bunch of wankers and pretty boys and, um, and they weren't real newspaper men like I was or women. Um, and then 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 discovered, really discovered television and, and fell in love with, you know, a whole different way of writing and pre- previewing and scripting and completely different to newspaper writing. And then I wrote a book. I wrote an autobiography. So I was an author. And now I'm in doco world and um, it's fabulous. It's, uh, you know, we're going to be doing more docos, I, I think. The series has been so successful that, mm. that um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that, that we can get another series of Lawless up. Um, and yeah, so it's yeah, fantastic. I, I, okay, can we talk about the the print journalism stuff for a bit? Because I think sure. there's a. I mean, I certainly when I you know I look at and I, you've got kids. When I look at my thirteen year old, you know, the way she consumes news. Like ten years ago, I wouldn't tell you that's how she got her news or how she connected with her friends. You know, that the idea of the you know the the hard-working, you know, newspaper man with his kind of top button undone with just the din of typewriters um, just kind of drowning out your ears and trying to race for the for the last moment before the presses get turned on. Um, is, is Was it like that? It was exactly like wow. that. It was fantastic. Um, I decided at 13, um, I, 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 I'm the only child of a, of a single mum who was a tragic alcoholic, um, housekeeper. I grew up in a monastery. Mum was a housekeeper for 12 Morris Brothers, and um, that's another story. But uh, at 13, she said, you know, she loved newspapers. She loved reading newspapers. She loved columnists and said, maybe maybe you could be a journalist. And that was when I was about 12, and it really stuck in my mind. And then my wayward father, who was absolutely a modern-day bushranger, um, who became a Santa Claus character in my life, brought me a tape recorder. He turned up with Robin Hood suit or a Superman suit or a Davy Crockett hat once or twice a year outside the school. That was my whole relationship with my father growing up. And um, 
he turned up with a tape recorder and this tape recorder became an amazing escape from mum's very violent alcoholism. And I was, you know, I had three mates that were the only male mentors in my life. We're still good friends today, still have regular card nights with the, with the 50 years later. And um, they, oh, man was about to step on the moon. They were the three astronauts. I was the interviewer. What do you expect to find? You know, how will you eat up there? How will you go to the toilet? Aliens, UFOs. Sometimes they wanted to be the reporter, but it was my tape recorder and they couldn't be the reporter. So I asked myself, you know, and I think everyone's got a higher power, um, I asked myself, where the hell is this coming from? Because there were no journalists in the family. It was only mum suggesting that I might want to get into newspapers. And it was electronic. It wasn't It wasn't print. But that was really the, the beginning of, of, I guess, you know, I used to walk around the shops and ask the pie shop how many pies they'd sold. Vietnam War was, you know, was raging. Should we be in Vietnam War? Moratorium rallies. Um, it was bizarre. Um so this this became a wonderful escape. So for it was me. a portable battery operated, portable battery with cassettes. So the yeah. the, the old, old cassettes, and you know, and I I couldn't afford a trench coat because I was a mad Superman fan in those days. And Clark Kent, or I love Clark Kent more than the superhero. And he always used to have a white trench coat. So I went and bought myself an army disposable coat, like an old brown number, but I could feed the the. To feed the cord of the microphone down at the coming out of the sleeve because I just thought you shouldn't see any wires and I'd have the, the tape recorder over my shoulder and I'd go around interviewing people, you know, just for anything and then roll it back and we'd roll, roll it all back and we'd listen to our unbroken voices and, um, and that's where it all sort of started. But still I never gave up on newspapers and then became a copy boy at 17 did a cadetship where you go into courts and, and I had to learn shorthand and and um and so there was quite the talent pipeline in those days, wasn't there? There was like you you came in at a certain level and you worked very, very hard to learn every aspect of what the paper did. Exactly. So you came as a copy boy, you didn't know when you were going to get a cadetship and you just had to sit in the radio room, listen to fire, ambulance, police radios and then tell the journalists that you've just heard this, you know, the police are on their way to a certain address uh, at, uh, you know, at, at Bondi or Brighton or, or wherever and you better get there. And then the reporter would go out there with a the photographer and a driver and they'd do – so then you'd get a cadetship for the first year, you know, you do TV programs and shipping, sitting up the back of the room as a copy boy. You're down the front, running, and you're right, running this the the the, the copy downstairs to the hot metal. Re- reporters are running around, photographers are running out of the door. The editors yelling, "Where is it? Where is it? We've got to get a go-. I get goosebumps. I'm getting goosebumps now, just talking about those days. And and I feel for the communication students these days who sit in a classroom with you know with people. I'm sorry, but, you know, people who aren't really good journalists because they're not in journalism. Right. Teaching them. So I learned on the floor and and it was fabulous. But you're learning with that that pressure of the daily deadline every single day. And 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 hanging there wanting to run out the door with those journalists of photographers. And when you get the chance, when you're finally in your second year cadetship and you're allowed to go to coroner's court or or general suburban courts of petty sessions, that's where you would start, and then to the airport round to see the Jackson Five or or, or Sinatra or, you know, movie stars coming through. 
um, I'm I'm getting goosebumps talking about. They, wow. I think really, you know, I, I, they were probably among the most exciting days of 35, 40 years career. What did you learn then that, like, even now that you still keep with you? Um, I think news sense. I think news sense is really important to know what a good story is. That um, you know, I mean, I was on. You know, I, I could. I was. I couldn't drive. I was too young to drive when I started, so I'd, I'd have to get a train or hitched to work. Sometimes arriving at midnight, um, if I was on the midnight to dawn shift, and you'd hear two ladies speaking about, for instance, a very well-known eastern suburbs girls' school on New South Head Road overlooking the harbour <laughs> um, about how a number of girls had been uh, expelled for smoking marijuana. And you go, boing, exclusive girls' school, Mm. You know, expels girls for drug taking, and back and back in the seventies, that was sort of a big deal. Today, it wouldn't be that much, that big a deal. So you re- you recognise that as a story. Sure enough, it was front page, and ended up on the front page of the of the. Of, in those days, I was working for the Mirror, which became the Daily Telegraph. Um, so so I think news sense. I think a care for people. I, I came from a very humble background. I, I'm, landlords would bully my mother um, when we were being evicted. A number of times in where we lived, they would bully her. So I became, you know, someone who really cared about the battler because I, I, I was one, um, and really wanted to help people and try and make a difference. So I think that, um, yeah, I guess just wanting to make a difference and wanting to inform people and sort of to. I know it sounds corny, but to try and right wrongs. Well, uh, that's that's the thing, you know, when I think of, you know, having watched you on television, uh, you know, ever since I've had a television, you've been there, that there was always a sense of justice that came with what you did. Um, but you say that came from when you were a kid. I, I think so. I think, well, well, certainly, you know, I was too young, you know, and I, I remember, you know, standing at mum's knees when, when, when another landlord was, was evicting us and, and, and bullying her and... You know, I, I felt I felt for her, and I and I and although she was a Jekyll and Hyde alcoholic, um, I, I understood that you know there was a good, very good side to her when she was sober, and not so good a side when she wasn't sober. Um, I saw that, and I and I saw again. You see the good and the bad in people. So I think, um, yeah, I grew up with that sort of wanting to. I mean, look, for instance, you know. You know, one stage when I was, you know, hosting a current affair when a current affair wasn't quite where it is today, you know, where we, we you know, still interviewing politicians and, you know, and doing stories that we think that mattered apart from consumer stories and still hosting This Is Your Life. I remember a little old lady wrote to me in this scrawl saying, I'm, I'm 92, I'm in a housing commission place and the carpet's all wrinkled and I'm, and I'm really worried that, that I'm going to fall over the carpet and break my leg. And, and I have been asking housing commission to please um, to try and come and open the window in the bathroom so I can get some air in there. And I thought, this is outrageous. So often if people, if strangers just wrote to me, I would then ring the Housing Commission and say, look, we're looking at doing a story on housing commissions around the country that don't look after their tenants. And we're going to start with this 92-year-old lady. Let me read you her letter. Mm-hmm. And they say, right. And I say, but of course, if, obviously, if you can fix the carpet, you can open the window. We don't have a story. But, you know, I'm going to start with it. And when can we interview you? <laughs> 
the little little old lady rang back the next day and she said, oh, I've never had so many people in my apartment before. Carpet flattened, window open, job done. Wow. So, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to do those sorts of things and there was never a story. When did you first get the sense of the, the, the power that the press has? Yeah, look, look, that's one. Look, I, I didn't use the word power, um, but it, it's, not, it's not a word I'm comfortable with because you can use it too often and, oh. you, and, you, can, and you can start abusing it too. Yeah. Um, and I think it's less these days. I think it's far less. Politicians think, oh, yeah, right, another, another, another flash trash current affairs program, you know, it'll go away. I don't think they, they care certainly about mainstream free-to-air as much. I think they respect ABC as I do and far more. Look at, look at the impact that Four Corners makes these days and look at the impact that Sunday night and 60 Minutes don't make. Um, but yeah, look, I, I think back in in my day as a young reporter, there was there was a, 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 a definite influence, and you could make a difference. Politicians were were, were, were worried about it, they were, and there were and there wasn't online, there wasn't Facebook, there wasn't Twitter, um, so that was mainstream media. But you have to be really, really careful. I've always tried to avoid the word power because it it can get out of hand. And you know, we've we've seen that. Obviously, in being used for good and and ill over our lives, uh, with the way that um, whoever controls the media and controls the narrative of the media. When did you first become aware? Let me ask you this: When did you first become aware of the controllers of the owners of where you're working pulling sway? When I saw Rupert Murdoch, who in those days was probably in Australia for you know six months of the year, he'd just gone to New England. He wasn't even in America. Um, walking into the editorial of the Mirror and r- sitting down to write an editorial to have Gough Whitlam elected in 1972. Then three years later, seeing him walk back into the editorial, he, he was coming and going in those those intervening years, and sitting down to write an editorial to have Whitlam sacked in 1975. You know, I thought, this is not right. This is not the way to go. I mean, this is too much influence. So which is why, you know, today I, I'm I'm on the sideline cheering CBS buying the Channel 10, which I think is fa- fabulous. It's a, a major, ma- the number one network in America, very highly respected, lots of money buying into, you know, poor old Channel 10, um, you know, the worst house on the street, and and hopefully it'll really give it a good boost. I'm 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 glad the Murdochs didn't get it. Do you think that the over the years the public have become more aware of who controls their news? Sure. Well, particularly in this country, I mean, seventy percent, but probably more now. Probably eighty percent of newspapers in this country are controlled by by News Corp, by by the Murdoch Group. Um, and look, you know, and I say this as an ex Murdoch copy boy. I mean, I I, I I'm don't know him well, but I certainly Rupert and I would know each other to say hello to, um, and I'm very grateful to him. I, you know, I pestered, pestered the hell out of him when I was 18, letting him know that a I was alive and b I wanted to go to New York one day as one of the reporters. But, but I look now and you know, too much power in in, in too few hands, and um, it, it, it's not good. Well, so you were really going up and knocking on the door saying, "Hey, by the way, I'm Mike Monroe." I know I'm 18 years old, but I'm working here for 
That's exactly right. In fact, it was Michael. My, my byline and, and early news um, television days was Michael Munro. Uh, as respect to mum, mum would never, ne- mum would never allow anyone to call me Michael Mick. Um, Sixty minutes turned me into Mike, but anyone close to me in my family, my kids, my kids call me, but my wife, anyone who knows me really well, no one calls me Mike. Nobody. Which is interesting. Um, yeah, so, you know, Secretary, uh, um, you know, uh, Dot Weinberg, I think, is still with Rupert. Um, Mrs. Weinberg, can I say, well, yes, but he, he's got your letter. And, and you've been here three times this week. I've told him he will get to meet you, I promise. Okay, all right, well, okay. And, and he was like 100 metres away from me in those days. Finally, I got in. Rupert said, yep. What did you want? I said, look, Mr Murdoch, I just wanted to let you know that I'm alive. Literally, I'm alive. I would like to be a reporter one one day in New York because he, he, by by now he'd sort of moved into America and New York was the go. London was the go earlier on, but now if you were a reporter, you were fair thinking you needed to get to New York. How's your shorthand going? I said, very well, thank you. I'm, I'm doing 80 words a minute, you know, which I hated shorthand. I'm doing 80 words a minute, um, attending all the cadet lectures. Yes, yep. Well, one day you'll get there. And you wouldn't believe it. Like, um, what would it be? 11 years later, we ended up having dinner at Windows on the World, which was the 107th floor of the World Trade Centre. And I didn't think he even remembered me. And, and we were walking out and he said, uh, see, I told you you'd get here one day. <laughs> I nearly died. I nearly died. Mm. Wow. Mm. Wow. But that hustle's always been a part of your career path? I, I get it from my, my father, I think. I think um, my dad was a, a fantastic salesman at 19, a company car, gift of the gab, but an Irish rogue who was lazy, preferred to go to the races, um, didn't want to work, and, and he was the absolute opposite to mum. And... Um, yeah, but but one thing I did get from him was the yeah was the was the, the hustle and the and the gift of the gab. He was a modern day bush ranger. But there's a difference between hustling and not having the goods when you, the door opens, though. I suppose so. Yeah, well, that's true. And and he did. I mean, at night. I mean, he was he was un, he was winning awards at nineteen as a, as as you know as the top Electrolux Electrolux vacuum cleaning salesman and Hills Hoist salesman <laughs> in Sydney. Wow. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, had, who had a company car at nineteen back in the what would it be the fifties? Right. Um, so um, yeah, you know, he 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 did back it up, but he. Yeah, but he, he gave it all away because he wanted to go to the races and he wanted to be a womanizer. Mum mum finally left him because she was sick of uniformed policemen and and angry husbands knocking on the door trying to find this this Irish rogue. You have um quite in a fairly high profile way, you've walked away from jobs on principle more than once. Yeah, I have. Yeah, look, I I've I've I think I, I think early I've I've always been a you know, I've always spoken my mind with management. I, I you know, I, I, even with This Is Your Life, I, I, was, I tried to walk away from This Is Your Life um, in the late 90s, 2000, about four or five years before it finished because I really wanted to concentrate on a current affair. I was hosting a current affair. It was going downhill into a consumer affair, which is what I used to call it, um, where, you know, I did not get into journalism to introduce toothbrush surveys or price of value, value on vacuum cleaners or, you know, white trash neighbours or cellulite. I had a daughter. I had, you know, I had a daughter... And I was worried about all the diet stories we were doing. Did I want to turn her into an anorexic? anorexic? No, I did not. So I, I, on principle, I sort of said, no, I'm going to give this is your life away. And 
And in the end, it didn't happen. But I, yeah, I, I walked away from 60 minutes because I needed to come home. I was only at 60 minutes for six years. I didn't travel well because I had this family that I'd always dreamed about as a kid, as an only child of a, of a, of an alcoholic single mum. And I, I, I dreamt of having the, the white picket fence, the, you know, the golden retriever dog and the, and the beautiful family. And, and when 60 minutes came along, I had all that, but I had to go away for, from it for eight months a year, four months domestic, four months international. We, we travelled a lot more than, than the 60 Minutes guys do these days. Um, so I left after six years to take a step backwards to go back to a current affair. Um, I left the Sunday night program when I was the founding host of a Sunday night when they wanted to take on 60 Minutes because I th- the direction of the show was was not going, not going where I thought it had gone in the first two or three years, um, too much cross-promotion. Um, and then I joined Channel 10 because I went back to news reading because it was still sort of untainted about cross-promotion stories and management telling 60 Minutes what it should do or Sunday night, and then they fired 120 kids from the newsroom and suddenly I, I was hosting a national news bulletin on 10 where there were no pictures, no live, no live pictures, um, very few cameramen, um, sound recorders had gone, and it was, I'm hosting a, a bulletin with, with no pictures. So, so I decided then and there that once the one-year contract finished, I'd, I'd leave and walked away and, and prepared to walk away for good. I thought, well, well, that's it. You know, it's been a great ride. Can't complain. Um, Lee and I are still, you know, still, you know, madly in love. I've got, now I've got five beautiful grandkids that I can spend time with and I do a bit of charity work. And then along came the doco. So suddenly mm. things have all – and I'm doing what I want to do now. Mm. Um, and, and I guess because I'm lucky enough to be able to afford to walk away and, and was prepared to do that, yeah. Right. Yeah. Because there's, there's not many people that – a lot of people would suck it up. Yeah. I, I, think, I think you get too addicted to fame. I think my newspaper background always has held me in, in good stead in the fact that, you know, two reasons – Newspapers, I still, I still, you know, you know, fifteen years in newspapers um, was was the real, the real deal, where you were stabbed in the chest, and they were real fair income, no BS, like it or lump it, people um, who just cared about the story. Whereas television's not quite like that. And the second thing is, Lee, there are no big heads in my home with my my wife. We've been together since we we're nineteen and sixteen. And no big heads. And if you know, if I get a bit big headed, she's going to slap me down immediately and 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 wake me up. So in those with those with those two things, uh, you know, armed with those two, I think I think no, look, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to. I probably stayed at a current affair too long. I should have I should have walked away from a current affair. Um, before I was fired, and they fired me from current affair because I was playing up so much and, and complaining that we were putting so much rubbish on air um, that I was really unhappy, and I, I should have had I should have had the balls to just to say, well, no, I'm going to resign rather than then rather than causing so much trouble that they sacked me. Right, but they couldn't completely sack me because I was still doing this is your life, <laughs> so I still had one other show up yeah. my sleeve. Yana, you know, kept it kept it pretty honest and. And, and straight. I think, I, th- I think in the, you know, really in the late 90s, sorry, the early 90s, it really started to slip. And yeah. the difficult thing was too, I remember, I remember once doing, you know, we, we did a story on a, on a politician called Bill O'Chee, who was a Queensland politician. Yeah. He'd been there for four minutes in parliament, walked away with $200,000 in superannuation. 
And um, years later, the, the new angle was that he'd now just walked out on his family, including a Down syndrome child. That was the new angle to the story. So, you know, we did that story and I thought that's a great story. Like it's a politician, it's a, you know, disabled child they're walking out of. He's already got the background of you know, superannuation. It's got everything that people will, will find interesting and dislike about him. But the minute-by-minute minute ratings that night just sort of dribbled. The worm, for people remember the worm, or the one because you can get minute-by-minute minute ratings, just dribbled along on a straight line. Whereas on the opposition channel, Channel 7, they did a price of value on air conditioners and up went the audience. And I, you know, management say to me, well, what are we, you know, what, what, you know, that was a good story, but no one wants to watch it. They want to watch, they want something for free. The, the catch cry was they love something for free. <laughs> I said, that's because we've been giving them this crap for so long. They don't know what they're missing. They've been watching rubbish and, and you know, free stuff mm. for so long now, they've forgotten what really good free-to-air current, current affairs is like. Anyway, um, yeah, I lost, I lost that battle, but... Um, and you know, and I look at I, you know, I look at Sunday night and sixty minutes now. Do I sixty minutes asked me if, if if I would do the odd story for them this year? And you know, I sort of said, "Oh, thanks, that's nice," and and didn't go any it didn't go any further. But do I really want to sit down and interview Hamish and Andy? <laughs> no. And I would have to say, look, I don't want to interview Hamish and Andy because it's one of your programs on on TV. All here. right, yeah. you know, it's cross promotion or on Sunday night. And let's be balanced. Do I really want to interview one of the judges on 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 one of your singing shows? No, because it's cross promotion. I, I remember walking into Gerald Stone's office at sixty minutes when when Gerald was the absolute doyen of, of Australian current affairs, and I heard this conversation saying, "No, Kerry." This is my program, Kerry, not yours. And uh, and I can imagine what Kerry was saying. Kerry would have said, son, it's my effing network, son. That's what Kerry would have said. <laughs> and he said, well, Kerry, it might. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And then, because I couldn't hear Kerry's conversation, but then Gerald said, yeah, well, Kerry, it might be your network, but it's my program. And I'm not going to be told by anyone how to run 60, min how to run 60 minutes. That would never happen today. No, it wouldn't, would it? No. So they're the sort of people that, that you know, if there'd been a major problem, you know, back then, I think everyone would have walked out. Everyone would have just walked away from their contracts. Yeah. That would have been hard. See, that, that would be the measure of, of me then, say, mortgage, two young kids, yeah. wife. Yeah. Would I have done it then? I don't know. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, they were different times. Where do you get your news from now? 
Um, yeah, look, mainly um, I'm, I'm old school. I'll, I'll read um, the, the the Fin Review, uh, Herald, and the Oz every day. Um, Three but, newspapers a day. Yep. Wow. Yep. Yep. And I'm not I'm not saying cover to cover, but certainly yeah yeah I, I, that's I'm I'm down there at the local cafe at seven o'clock in the morning. With the three papers, um, and then and then, you know, I, I watch, I watch ABC morning TV. I'm not a not a big morning TV person, but 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 I do watch. And then glued to glued to six thirty at night SBS until seven o'clock when I go across the ABC. No wonder my two kids don't want to know about news. <laughs> They're over it. They're over that. They're, it's interesting that you were saying that. Um, you know, a member of your family is, is right into news. Mine are not. Right. Which which breaks my heart because I think they should be well informed. Right. You know, those young parents, they should know about allergies. They should know about mortgages and interest rates and what might change. Um, but, yeah, I suppose that they had too much of it as kids. Yeah. I do, I do you know, when I see how the the storytelling and news telling is, is shifting so rapidly, uh, like there's no sands that are even shifting, it's just like airborne dust, <laughs> we get to see where it lands. Yeah. But, you know, and you certainly see it in the States, the, you know, the idea that robust democracy can only exist when journalism is powerful yeah. and then you see how much it's, it's played with in the States mm. um, and, you know, even more so in places like, like Russia and stuff like that. When you see, you just see little bits and pieces of it happening here. I, it does does freak me out a bit. I'm not gonna, mm. I'm not gonna lie. But I, you know, and you mentioned it earlier. I'm, I'm grateful that we in our country have something like the ABC. Yeah, that oh. is, it, they are, they have their feet held to the fire every day uh, in Parliament to justify their budgets. And yep. so, you know, the idea that they are lefty is is actually, you know, it's been proven that it isn't. And you go in there, and they're just working so hard to. Yeah. Just to tell the story mm. and to be in a country where that is, you know, and you've travelled all over the world, you've been in some countries that are frightening, to have a resource like that that is government funded is... It's fabulous. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, we're very lucky. You're right. We're so lucky. And, you know, and no one should take the ABC for granted. I think they do a fantastic job. And, yeah, look, you know, it's, 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 we've always thought as, as journalists that, you know, it is our job to sort of be, you know, I guess left of centre. We've always, you know, stuck up for the battler. We've, you know, I think we've got to be, I think as journalists we've got to be left of centre anyway. Not not far left and certainly not far right, but but left of centre to, to, to look after the working man and, and and the battler, and and break those stories, and I and I I think you know free to air current affairs, and and some of the you know the the, the tabloid newspapers have lost that, um, and gee, I mean look 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 at what Four Corners has broken over the last three or four years, compared to you know Sunday night or, or sixty minutes, and you know okay the cocaine girl in Colombia, well you know they purchased that. And and you can purchase too many stories. It's something. I'll, oh, you mean like they wrote a check to get the, the interview? Well, no, they didn't. Do, they 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 sent the family over there. Uh-huh. They sent her family over there. Uh-huh. Um, they, I, I think I think they're now stopping at, at paying crims, which was one of my great bugbears when I was at nine for a long while, and never got involved ever in paying criminals. Mm. But unfortunately, to my detriment, was involved in in paying for stories, which I which I publicly fought against for a long while. But, you know, as I was always told, if we don't get it, the opposition will. So, Well, yeah, that's that's the business. Yeah. That, and it is a business, as, yep. you know, that, that you're in when you are on commercial 
yeah. uh, on television. We talked about being called um, Mike on air and having your name changed, your first name changed. But Munro wasn't always your family surname, was it? No. Um, Mum, in, in her, often in her drunkenness, would, would, you know, she was a name caller, but, but she would often say to me, even when I was eight and nine, ten, oh, you're only from a family of murderers and bushrangers anyway. And I had no idea what she meant until I was in my 30s. I was, I was with 60 Minutes. And my father, who was dying then, sat me down and said, look, our name's not Munro. I said, what? I mean, I've had, you know, I had bylines on, on national television called, mate. What are you talking about? He said, our name's Kenneth, K-E-N-N-I-F-F. We're related to the last bushrangers in Australian history. I, I have two great uncles, one of whom was hanged in Brisbane Jail in 1903 and for killing a policeman and a station manager and then incinerating their bodies and then breaking their bodies up and leaving remnants of their flesh and bone in police saddlebags for the police to find. And the name was Kenneth. I was to be baptised Michael Kenneth Munro. Fifty years later and another generation, Mum was so ashamed of the history, she whispered to the priest, it's supposed to be Kenneth. So I'm boring old Michael Kenneth. Then I started to research them at Trinity College in Dublin as I was doing lots of stories on the IRA for 60 minutes in those days, and I started to research research the Kenefs. So they were initially from Tipperary, C-U-N-N-I-F-F-E, and they moved out in the 1860s, but because they couldn't read or write, they were absolute bog Irish, and a lot of my journalistic colleagues will say today that I still can't read and write. They, they, the, when the police were busting them, they became Kenneth. So the C-U-N-N became K-E-N-N, and that's what the family became. My grandfather was called Patrick Kenneth, who was the same name as his cousin who was hanged, and he was so ashamed of the history that he he changed his name illegally overnight to Henry Munro, had five children, the youngest of whom was my father. They all were illegally Munro most of their lives until the old man died. And when the death certificate was issued in the name of Munro, they became legally Munro. Right. We, Lee and my wife and I have Sean, our, our firstborn child is Sean, and when he was born, we we named him Sean Keneef after the correct Tipperary spelling. He loves the history. He embraces it. So it's gone from that shame and, and secrecy to the, the latest generations who who have embraced it. Because there was a lot of there was a lot of uh, shame about being of convict blood, uh, and of being you know once was a convict and you know I guess back then you could say oh no 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 I came here as a free man no one need know that you were up in Moreton Bay Jail for five years and then suddenly you you show up in in Sydney Town, you know no one need know, um, but I, I I wasn't I wasn't aware that there was such shame around um, the bush ranging you know criminals and their families. Yeah yeah and 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 look. As we discussed earlier, there's the, the, the series that's, that's on Foxtel at the moment and, and, and that series surrounds the descendants of both the policemen who were killed by the Bushrangers, Ned Kelly, Ben Hall, Captain Moonlight and the Kenneths, and the descendants of the Bushrangers themselves. But even the descendants of the policemen, upstanding, decent citizens, even those families have not talked about their police hero relatives because they were associated with Ben Hall or Ned Kelly. So there's there's a... That doesn't make sense, but there's a shame on all sides mm. in some respects. Um, 
but certainly from our point of view, I can I can understand I can understand the the shame, and I and I've always thought, look, you know, I, I've I've never felt any shame about it. I couldn't do anything about it. I wasn't around at the time. I certainly, you know, I'm very sorry for the Doyle and the Dalkey families, the, the the two the two guys who were murdered by my great uncles, um, but. You know, I wanted to tell the story, and 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 the, and the journalist in me said, "Wow, these guys are the last bushrangers." Mm. That was the, that was the the hook for me, the last bushrangers, the last ones to hang for the crime. Well, well, no, no, the the very last bushrangers in Australian history, right? Because the the Patrick was hanged, Jimmy was his sentence was commuted to life, and he didn't die until 1941, as a recluse tin opal miner in Charters Towers. I've been to his gravesite. So we still had a bushranger alive during World War Two. Wow. So in in that sense, so it's, I, I, I wanted to tell their story and certainly not defend them in any way at all. Mm. No, no way did I. In fact, the production company, Gene Paul Productions, who, uh, who helped produce the series, said, look, you know, we're, we're going to come up with some new Ned Kelly stuff that's going to upset a lot of the Kelly fans. And in relation to your relatives, what happens if we find out that, you know, that they did do it. I said, well, I don't doubt for a second that they did it or other members of their family did it. And as far as upsetting people, I'm your man. I've spent a, <laughs> I've spent a career upsetting people. I lo- as long as it's fair and accurate and ethical, hey, get me there now. I want to keep upsetting people from management down. <laughs> <laughs> so so let's talk about the, the difference between the, the popular, I guess, the romantic What's what's the what's what's talk about the chasm between the romantic conception of a bushranger and what bushrangers actually were? Look, you know, and Kelly Ned Kelly is the is the perfect example. Um, yeah, down tr- and look, I as you you know, I'm Irish ancestry. I had a lot of sympathy for Kelly. I've read a number of books. Love the Peter Carey book on Kelly, um, and I had a lot of sympathy for him. Downtrodden, bog Irish, uh, couldn't read or write. Um, but but with lots of charisma, superb horsemen, looking after the landowners who were, you know, who were, had to put up with the corrupt policemen and the authorities. I'm no fan of of, of the British, particularly in relation to Gallipoli, um, the Irish. Um, I'm no fan of British imperialism at all. So I, but then when I researched Kelly for the for the Doco series, I I found that really there was a lot more to it, like. Um, the landowners. He always maintained that the landowners couldn't have coped without him. If, if they hadn't have been helping the landowners, they wouldn't have been able to pay off the land. Bank records from the time, actual bank records from the time, prove that all the landowners in the Greta, Glen Rowan, Beechworth, Wangaratta area, they were all doing very well, thank you very much. Um, they were paying off their land. Their problem was that the Kellys were knocking off their stock. That was the problem. So really, they they weren't they they weren't they were they were struggling, but they were doing very well. So so as far as that you know the the poor you know the poor downtrodden landowners being helped by the Kellys, I don't I don't buy it. I don't buy it. I think I think the Kellys were and both sides, both cousin, the cousins on both sides of the maternal and paternal family of the Kellys, Kellys were all horse thieves. And and they were on the border of New South Wales and uh, and Victoria, and they were superb horse thieves. And they were rebranded over in New South Wales. They had the best, you know, Ferrari, um, Lamborghini, and and uh, Aston Martin 
theft going on that anyone could imagine. They were they were the the, the modern day, you know, top line car thieves, only with thoroughbred horses. I, I I don't have a lot, and I think Ned Kelly was a. And then you know, then Kelly was going to derail a train full of cops. Full, well, cops, journalists and civilians yeah. coming into Glen Rowan on a bend over a ravine and, I, you know, he would have been the number two mass murderer in Australian history behind Martin Bryant at, at Port Arthur. Um, I, I, and, and, of course, as we say in the doco, that he that right off the top 18 months before Glen Rowan, before he donned the armour, he, he, he ambushed four policemen in their camp, killed one, kept one prisoner and then methodically sat down in that camp waiting for the other two cops to come back into the camp and murdered both of them. Um, You know, he could have ridden away, but he didn't. He could have taken all their food. He could have taken what weapons were there, could have taken two horses, and that was all very valuable to him. But no, he waited until they rode back into camp and ended up murdering them. I, I I don't have a lot of... I don't have... A lot of sympathy for Ned Kelly at all. So, how did that story turn into? Ah, uh, who's the you know the battling Australian, such is life. You know, handsome beard. I, because you know. we're all Irish, but most of us, most of us were all Irish. Um, you know, we'd been. We, 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 you know, we a lot of us were Irish. We've come out of the Gallipoli years. Not long after that, you know, um, that the, the, the Poms are really screwed up Gallipoli. Um, we'd go to World War Two when Churchill didn't want to give us our men to come back to, to New Guinea. You know, thank heavens, you know, Chifley said, no, I'm bringing our men back from Europe to defend our country. So we've, I think, I think initially we were, we were, we were, we were English. Mm. We were either English or Irish, um, and I think and I think mo- most most first-born Australians regarded themselves as as Irish ancestry. So we had so naturally we're going to side with with the the, the bush rangers who were who were really only there to, and there were corrupt policemen. The, the you know the the British authoritarianism was very much there. Uh, look at the Eureka Stockade and the Rum Rebellion and and, and all of that. Um, th- there was every every right that we had to be sympathetic towards our Irish ancestry and therefore the bush rangers but i think as time went on you know Boer war world war one world war two i think and now and today we're so multicultural that you know who's irish mm. so what you're saying is that it's looking for a figure in australian folklore that we could um that stood up to authority and we could, I guess, sort of identify with. We related to them because right. most of us were, you know, really back then were most of us were either Irish or, or, or British mm. descendants. And I think, yeah, and I, and I think most of us, most of us related to, to the downtrodden and we're all larrikins, mm. you know, there's that larrikinism in us and I think you're always going to side with the, with, the, with the Irish larrikin, right. no matter what. So just kind of forgetting about the police murdering part. Yeah, that's and right. <laughs> I guess so. It was a fancy costume. Yep. Which was, you know, and and you know, that's a great that's a great great story to tell. Look like me, you know, and, until really I went into Ned Kelly. I mean, I you know, I thought I thought, you know, poor old Ned. Mm. Um, but n- not any longer. No. Yeah, he was, he was a piece of work. He was. He was. A, he really was. You know, and Ben Hall's. You know, Ben Hall. You know, the glamour boy. Yes, maybe he didn't kill a copper, but his gang, his gangs, his gang killed two policemen. He would rob women. You know, everyone say, "Oh, he's very nice to women. He doesn't rob women." Well, he does rob women and robs robs Chinese gold miners. The absolute rock bottom of society back in those days mm. was robbing the you know the the really the really vulnerable people. So. You know, and here's my great uncles who are bloody 
killing decent uh, station managers and coppers and then, and then burning their bodies, for God's sake. Far out. Yeah, it's pretty gruesome. <laughs> yeah. What did you find when you went up uh, up there? Um, well, yeah, well, we... Yeah, is, there so, still, is there still stuff around? Like I'm surely metal detectors have been around for long enough. Surely people have swept that land. No, no they haven't. No, really? The, no, the Kenneths, the Kenneths um, and, and as, you, as, you, as I know you know, you saw the, the Kelly. We, we found, we found the, the, the campsite where Kelly first murdered the cops that they've had wrong for 140 years um, and we found that 300 metres away. We found that. And that and that was in the in the in the Kelly doco, um, and when we went up with the Kenneths, it had never been swept because it's so isolated. So we're talking Carnarvon Ranges, Carnarvon National Park. When you'd leave Roma and drive north of Roma, it's a three-hour drive, mostly on a dirt road, and you you may pass one car on the way in. So it's very remote by the time you then get to the ranger station and then drive another half an hour to Lethbridge's Pocket, where the murder scene is. The tr- there was a tree there. Um, we know we've got exactly the right spot from photographs and etc. And the archaeologist, because our series is based on archaeology, uh, moved in, roped off, roped off the area, and meter by meter, in a in a one hundred square meter area, brought in these super duper metal detectors, and we found a 0.44 Winchester slug last handled by one of the Kenneths that could have been one of the bullets that killed Doyle and Dalkey that lay four inches under the soil for 115 years and it's and and, and confirmed by the Victoria Police Forensics Laboratory that uh, that now will end up in the Queensland Police Museum wow it was incredible so when you when you describe it like that and I'm, I'm fascinated with this part of Australian history because the people that lived out there they were essentially the space explorers of our time, using the the furthest advanced technology available at the time, this this rifle that came from a factory in America, and it came here via a ship, and now we are on horseback, weeks if not months ride from anywhere. I'm going to make a life here. Yeah, you know who the fuck would do that now? No, you no. know it's astonishing that that when you find these parts of Australia, you know that people did that. No, you're right. You're, and not only the best weaponry, the best horses, mm. um, you know the the best horsemen and and well men. At the time, horsemen. At the time, yeah. yeah, exactly. So, yeah, you're right. I mean, even poor old Constable Doyle, who rode into Lethbridge's pocket that that Easter Sunday morning, um, with the with the, the Aboriginal tracker and and the station manager Dalkey, he was only carrying a, a lousy four four Webley police issue pistol. That was it. Um, whereas the Kenneths had Winchester rifles, Colt forty fours, um, the absolute latest weaponry, all stolen, of course, from right. from wealthy squatters. Um, but you're right, and and all riding thoroughbreds, and li- I, you, I mean, and they had this Kenneth, there was Kenneth Cave, Kenneth Lookout. It's all called Kenneth Country. The most, the most amazing hideouts, Osha. You just, I'm, yeah. I'm, oh mate, it, a cave, the Kenneth Cave. You could ride you on your horse. You could ride into, mm. and then it had multiple exits. Wow. And, and that's when my father first whipped me up. He said, and they had this, there's a hole in the wall. There's like a hole in the wall, gang, wherever anyone, and Dad had never been anywhere near there. He said, but they could disappear from the police. They could absolutely disappear. They just disappeared right. off the face of the earth. No one knew whatever they'd go. Well, you know, 30 years later, I went there. Wow. With my son, with Sean. Oh, that's cool. Oh, it was fantastic. And there is this cave, and it's you've just got to see it to believe it. And wow. That, it was 
you know, it's 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 so exciting. That's so cool. Yeah, uh, yeah. I've I've been I've been yearning to get um, I, for want of a better word, I've been yearning to get out back again. Um, I've been quite busy the last few years, but back when I was working for Foxtel, I did get a chance to travel a fair bit mm. um, out through uh, Western Queensland and, and Northern Territory. And it's just, you know, we have such an incredible country. Oh, yeah. And it is so, the metropolitan areas of our country may as well be a different planet. Mm. They may as well be a different planet from from the rest of, 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 of where we live. Um, when you were doing this research what was the thing that i guess what was the thing that most surprised you uh for on the kenneths you mean or generally the uh, generally rangers? about about the about the bush ranger you know the stories about about uh, the bush rangers yeah look i think i think really that um you know coming from my irish ancestry um that, that they weren't the angels that and the icons and the legends that we all that we all think they are mm. um they were they were bad lazy murderous Dudes, you know they, 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 yeah, they didn't want to work. I mean, Ben Hoare is a perfect example. He, you know, he had a lovely wife. He, he, he had a child. The, the the wife went off with a policeman, and that sent him over the edge. And he didn't come back to society after that. Well, okay, you know, you can grow up. You can grow up the only son of a violent alcoholic, but you got to get on with it. You can't blame the cops. You can't blame society. You can't blame, you know the government or the authority, you've, you've got to get on and just do the best you can mm. without, you know, without feeling sorry for yourself. I'm glad you did a story on Captain Moonlight. He's one of my... Uh, Is he? Yeah, he's one of my favourites. Is that yeah. right? Well, just because of how he had, you know, because of his life, because that, and particularly when you start reading the letters that he wrote to his, his mm-hmm. lover, his, mm-hmm. his, his boyfriend, his husband, whoever you want to call it, yep. when you read those letters, you're like... Man, the guy was in love. Mm, the guy, he was. he was just, you know, sure, he was, you know, murderous butch ranger. Yeah. He just, yeah. You know, it's it's so it's so fascinating that there's this this guy and and you know the the pictorial depictions of him. I don't know how accurate they are. He's mm. dashingly handsome. He's got yeah. this fantastic beard. Preacher. Yeah, gorgeous. You yeah. know, well educated, incredibly charismatic chap, and and yet you know there he was. He had this this guy in his gang and. And, you know, as a punishment, they even buried them apart. Mm. You know, mm. how, how medieval is that? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. You know, he, well, and he met Jack Nesbitt in, in jail in, in, the, in his early years. Well, I say early years. All these guys are dead by the time they're 35. Yeah. Um, but um, Mac met Jack Nesbitt in jail after, after he was jailed for, a, as you would know, for a gold robbery. And then they, then they went on the road. But... but you know, he went on the road with all these kids. I mean, these, these they were kids. I mean, and and you know what? We all, you know, we also establish in the doco, Moonlight is probably one of my, probably the favourite of the four for me because archaeologically what we find is unbelievable. Colt 31s, I mean, you know, with the Kenneths we found 8.44 Winchester slug. That's it. With Moonlight, we find Colt 31 slugs, Colt 36s. The 31s were the Bush Rangers. The 36s were the cops. Uh, Martini Henry or Henry Martini, I always get confused. Martini Henry slugs that were carried by the cops. Even a Snyder slug because Moonlight had a Snyder rifle. But the unbelievable thing is that Constable Webb Bowen was shot in the left-hand side of the neck. But Moonlight was standing over on the on his right. Moonlight didn't kill the cop. Wow. 
Moonlight did not kill the cop. Holy moly. Yeah, yeah. So you, you, you'll have to have a... You'll have to have a look at the Moonlight episode. I'll have it's to a, dig that one it's out. fabulous. It is. It's it's fantastic. Yeah. You, you also you also you, you know a big part of this was taking the relatives uh, yep. down. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know obviously amazing research. You've got to track those they, people they down. Were, they were fantastic. They were, yeah, research that's, is unbelievable. That's really 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 something. Um, what was it like putting those two people together? Yeah, look, um, the, 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 I think the telling moment of all four docos was, was where Anthony Griffiths, the great-grandson uh, or great-nephew of Ned Kelly, meets the great-grandson of Sergeant Kennedy. I saw that one. He's got a thing in his eye. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, and, and, and Sergeant Kennedy was shot at point-blank range after being wounded by Kelly, chased him off into the bush and then, and then shot out his chest while he's already wounded, Ned Kelly. Um, and when the two of them came together, you know, it, it, was, it was palatable. It was really – and Anthony didn't particularly want to do it because none of the Kelly clan are ever going to win any, anything here. Um, Leo Kennedy, the, the great-grandson of, of Sergeant Kennedy – was very emotional, holding up the fob watch that that, that, that that Kelly had stolen from his body, bragged to people in pubs afterwards that he'd, he'd taken this from Sergeant Kennedy's body. But, you know, it was very dignified. There was no conf- no real conflict. And I think they realised that they had so much in common, that 140 years later, really, we're still suffering. Both of us are still suffering, the, 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 the pain and the embarrassment and, I, you know, we're... We're very similar, and I think they realise that, and 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 promise to each other they keep in contact, which was lovely. It's, it's like when you see, I mean, you don't see it anymore, but I remember as a kid you'd see photos of, um, uh, like a Turkish trooper and a mm. Australian guy, you know, getting back together and having a drink, you know. 80 years after the landing at Gallipoli. It's yeah. like, it wasn't our fight, mate. No, that's right. And really respecting each other. Yeah. You know, the Aussies on, the, on Anzac Cove and trying to get up those hills and the Turks couldn't believe how brave they were and vice versa. Yeah, yeah it's a special relationship between between Australians and Turks yeah. for those reasons. Yep. Yeah. You mentioned um, being over in, uh, in Northern Ireland. Um, I'd imagine throughout your career you've, you've had a few close shaves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Um, early days, early days of uh, of Iraq, and when Beirut was being bombed, and uh, I've, I've been shot at. I've even been shot at in uh, in Sydney at one stage as a newspaper reporter. Um, and yeah, and the and and the IRA, we, we 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 I think we were the last and the first for many years crew to actually do a profile on the IRA in Northern Ireland under British Sphinx helicopters. We never saw a face all day. They were all balaclavered up. And we were supposed to do it in the Republic of Ireland, which we were all fairly comfortable about. And I'd, you know, many times driven from from the south into the north, but past all the turrets and the, and the you know, the military... Borders and and all of that, where you know where you're going, but we were ta- we were taken from Dublin over into North Armagh, and I never saw a soldier. And he said, "I said we're going to do this in the south, in the south, right?" 
He said, no, 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 we're going, we're going over the border. I said, what do you mean we're going over the border? I said, we're supposed to do it in the Republic of Ireland. No, no, we thought we'd do it right under the noses of the British. I said, whereabouts? He said, we're going into North Armagh. North Armagh? North Armagh, there's 20,000 British troops. And, of course, back then you couldn't interview um, um, Sinn Féin's Jerry, Jerry Adams. Yep. You couldn't even interview him in Britain. But we're going to be, we knew we were going to, there were going to be weapons. You, you couldn't have a, a, as you know, in England you can't have a pistol, you can't have a gun. So we get into this farmhouse. They have roped off the farmhouse one kilometre around. I said, so if a soldier come, he said, oh, no, no, there'd be no soldier would be coming near us today. I said, how do you know? He said, oh, well, he wouldn't, well, he'd only get one kilometre, he wouldn't get much further. <laughs> So someone turns up with the, the, the barrel, someone turns up with the firing pins, someone turns up with the bullets, and it's all the cells, all these different cells. No one knows what anyone else is doing. Yeah. It was, it was har- and we're in this little tiny farmhouse, and I'm thinking, and when we arrived, there were two Sphinx helicopters over, over North Armagh. There's guys hiding under the bush um, with gloves on. They're now wearing gloves because you could go to jail, you could go to jail for 20 years on a particular freckle on your hand. The, the British would put you in jail in the maze if you were IRA. So they they, they cover their skin a lot because you, you, you go to jail on on on, a, on any mark on your skin. They're all hiding under bushes while we're being while we're offloading into this house. So we get into the house and there are six recruits being shown how to use the rifles. About two weeks before that, a $20 million Sphinx helicopter had been shot down with a 12-millimetre machine gun wow. in Northern Ireland. This is a country where you can't even have a pop gun. And out they pull the 12-millimetre machine gun. It is the hottest weapon in, in the United Kingdom. And I'm thinking these choppers are going to come over the hill any moment. They're going to blow the crap out of all of us here and say, sorry about the Australian crew, but we told you, you know, you really shouldn't be hanging out with the IRA. Um, you know, and I think, oh, anyway, and he's, and he's and okay, so it's, uh, so it's a 12 millimetre machine gun. It fires 600 rounds per second. He's, he's telling these recruits. And then he says, okay, now we're, we're going to take your rifles and uh, into the paddock, which was a sunken paddock, where they actually fired the guns as target practice. But it was in a sunken paddock because they knew the British sat on the horizon looking out across paddocks to see anything untoward. But be below the sunken paddock, they could fire all day and the, and the, and the, the choppers had gone and that was the only reason they were able to fire because the choppers had moved on. And and here they are with the recruits and we're firing live rounds with these, uh, two two of whom were women in balaclavas. And then and then at the end of the day, we have five mags of film. Back in those, it was film. Yeah, reversal. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Film, yeah, exactly. Beautiful film. I love film, miss film. Five mags, 50 minutes of film. And but it's they, not a little memory card. This is like a lot. This is a big thing that you've got to get back over a border now. That's it. Exactly. We're in the northern mark. And, 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 and look, if we're caught with this, we all go to jail. I mean, if we were caught, even if the British walked in and didn't blow us up, if we're caught with these weapons, we, we went over with, with particular IRA expert lawyers, or not, not IRA, but lawyers who, were, who, who knew their way around the, uh, the terrorism laws, that if we were picked up with any of these weapons, we're going to get 20 years. We're 20 years in jail. And disappear for the first week mm. with no lawyers, right? Yeah. So, um, so we had, so, and suddenly everything, everyone disappeared. It was like it was it was like a it was like a, a dream because 
away went the bullets, away went the, the barrels, away went the firing pins, everyone got their car, and the four of us, camera, sound, reporter, producer, were all left standing in this little farmhouse and everyone's gone. It was bizarre. So we drove back to Dublin over the border and that night I flew straight to Amsterdam with the five magazines, stuck them in the roof of a friend in Amsterdam who argued with her husband because he was not happy that these five magazines of, um, of film, the IRA, were in his roof and flew back to Dublin the next day to reenact the whole drama of how he did it with actors. Right. And um, and then flew at home, got the film out of the country and then flew home with it. And then and the four of us went back to England about three or three months later expecting that we were going to be pulled up big time in Heathrow and sailed through. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing though. Like this this happened in in my lifetime that the British, we would like to think, a fairly civilised nation. This is early 90s. We're, we're so like militarily suppressing another, as we'd like to think, fairly educated civilised nation. But, you know, sometimes I worry. Right? I worry, you know, I've got a, I've got a kid, she's 13, and I worry, like, what the fuck is the world going? What are we doing? Yeah. The planet's heating up. Everything's kind of shit. Yeah. But if, if in the course of like from when I finished high school to now, that oppression can go away, you know, what else is possible? Donald Trump. <laughs> But do you look at the world? I mean, like you know, as someone who's seen the dark, dark parts of humanity, do you do you look at the world with you know? Do, do we generally fall on the on the good side? I think you got to. I mean, I, I think I think we really have to try and be as positive as we possibly can. You know, I mean, I'm looking at doing a, a doco now on Doomsday. You know, what happens? What happens when you know when the bomb, when North Korea lobs a nuke on 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 Seoul and America responds? You know, prevailing winds. Where's the radiation fallout? What happens to the nuclear winter as it moves around the planet? You know, and I, you know, it's depressing. It's really depressing. And I and I mentioned it to my son Sean, and I thought, why am I telling him this? Mm. I shouldn't be telling him this. He said, well, Dad's pretty depressing. He's got three beautiful children. He doesn't want to know about this. I mean, he should know about it, but I don't want to offload it onto him. I think you've got to be positive. I think we have to be po- And if we're not positive, we may as well give up, really. If we're all going to throw in the towel and say, oh, well, it's all too hard, you know, Donald Trump's going to blow the world up, God forbid, um, then, then really we may as well just let him. I think we've got to we've got to stay positive. We've got to we've got to think that you know that where we are at the moment, Mueller, with the indictments on uh, on um, on various people within the Trump organisation. I don't. Know. I, I th- look. I, th- I think you, we've got to be positive, and 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 we, we've got to be positive for our kids and for our grandkids. And but it's a it's a. It is a it's a dark period at the moment. I've got to say, I, I I I've never been sort of more apprehensive, really, in my lifetime. I've got to say, and I was probably too young during the missile, the Cuban missile crisis, to really appreciate what was going on. Um, although I was only you know I was only a kid, young kid, but but yeah, it's 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 a difficult period, and and we've got to maintain our our, our being positive and 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 outlook that it'll pass and. You know, and and it'll spur someone really charismatic. You know, I think you know, hopefully we, you know, we'll, after all these difficult years, even in Australia with all these hung parliaments, I'm over hung parliaments. I want someone, and I don't, and I'm and I'm offensive. I don't, I don't particularly care what party, but just someone with enough seats in parliament that can make a decision. And um, and the same thing in America. 
and England, mm. you know, and Spain. <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? God. But I think, I think you're right, though. I think throughout history, as a race, we wouldn't have survived if we didn't keep our chins up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we have, uh, yeah, that, absolutely right. And um, we'll get through this. We'll get through this because, you know, because we have to. I just, you know, and we, I think really, you know, I think the environment is a bigger issue than, you know, than, than Donald Trump will ever be. I, th- I think um, the environment, you know, the extremes that we're going to be experiencing, I just hope that, um, you know, that we, that, that we and, and, and again, you've got to be positive that we, that we have to make time to fix it. Hmm. You know, people say we're running out of time, running out of time. Well, you know, we just have to make time to fix it. I think that's that's the thing that I I really try and focus on. It bothers me greatly. I think the thing that I try and focus on is like, you know, you look at the guy who, forty five years old, wife, three kids, has a massive heart attack, and he's you know fifty kilos overweight, and he's living it beyond his means, and he's falling over the place. Within three years, he's running a triathlon, fitter than ever. You know, I'd like to think that we're just about to have that heart attack, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a good analogy. There is only one way to turn. There is only one way to go. There is only one change we can make, and it is going to be overwhelmingly positive. I just, I just, I just wonder how many Katrinas and Marias and, mm. you know, you know, Tasmanian-sized icebergs that we're going to have to confront, you know, before. But that's right, Exactly. You, and, but that, that's the thing, though. But you, as as someone who's always worked in the news, you have the foresight to see a story before it peaks, so you get in early. You just have to, unfortunately, we have to kind of wait until the general population goes. Oh, that is a good idea. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. busy. I've finished looking at my free air conditioner. I'm gonna, you know, look, look at this now. <laughs> that's it. Look at <laughs> look at Macron this week uh, in France. No more no more um, petrol driven cars after what 2020. Brilliant. You know, and, 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 you know, UK is going the same way. So that's, that's all good. And there are a lot of positives. You know, we do tend to concentrate on the negatives. We do. Mm. Let's concentrate on the positives. I'm so thrilled you came, man. Thank Thanks you for so having much me. Thanks for coming around. Osha, thank you for having me. That was Mike Munro. You can watch his new documentary show, Lawless, The Real Bush Rangers. Uh, in Australia, it's on Foxtel. In New Zealand, it's on Sky. Elsewhere, you'll probably find it if you go looking. Um, thank you so much to Jamie Campbell from Foxtel who helped me organise that chat. He managed to make time in Mike's very busy schedule to, to get him over here, and that was uh, that was a real coup for us here at the show. So thank you very much, Jamie. Big thanks to Andy Marr, my producer, and Hayley Van Spania, my production coordinator, that moved mountains to make sure this episode could get to air today. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And thank you for listening. Thank you for being a part of the show. Thank you for helping me make this show. Once again, if you like this show, please tell someone who doesn't listen to it yet. Let them know. Help them download a podcast. Uh, because like I told you before, more people listening means a high profile for us, means higher, you know, ability to to get higher profile guests which means better shows for you so that's the way you can help this show that would be really really great thank you so much for being here until we talk next week sleep well and dream of beautiful things even on a budget quality is non-negotiable 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 